Okay. Any comments or thoughts or questions from anything left over? All right then, onward and upward. 235. A certain disciple often suffered from moods. Why do I have them, she asked the master. Moods are caused, he replied, by past overindulgence in sense pleasures. They are the consequence of oversatiety and disgust. Don't give in to them. Frequently, he advised people, if you indulge in moods, they will reawaken your past desire for their opposite pleasures. Thus, they will pull you down into delusion again. I know it's a very... I've, I've contemplated this for a long time. I'm not sure I understand it even now. But he'll, he makes an attempt to explain it, and then we'll make an attempt to understand it. <laughs> One might ask... Why would indulging in moods awaken in you the very desires that cause one to suffer in the first place? The answer, the Master explained, is that life manifests the principle of duality. It is like a pendulum, swinging unceasingly, as he put it, back and forth between opposite states of awareness. The farther the pendulum swings in one direction, the farther it must swing back in the other. Indulgence in moods returns a person with or without his consent um, to their opposite pleasures. And I guess that's sort of the answer to why would it do that. It's with or without his consent. You've pushed yourself off balance and you're going to boing back. To stop that unending to and fro movement, the secret is to resist it as a child does who wants to get off a swing. In this case, the master said, The solution is to preserve a mental non-attachment. When a child wants to get off a swing, he stops it by resisting both the forward and the backward movements. The same is true for the pendulum swing of life. Resist inwardly the pleasure you feel in anything and resist also the sadness life brings you in consequence. Strive to be even-minded in all that happens so that nothing touches you inwardly. This doesn't mean to allow nothing to please you, which is to say to become apathetic. Simply realize that whatever pleasures you enjoy are in yourself, not in outward sensations. Your pleasure that way will actually be all the greater. Well, this is not an easy teaching, is it? The disciple said one to another, this is not an easy teaching. (laughs) You have to, no, I have to remind you on this book that Swamiji was faithfully recording and then reporting various conversations he had with Master. And he's not, I mean, he does balance it out with commentary, but as we've already found, he just lets a lot of things stand because Master actually said them like that line, resist whatever pleasure you feel. Because in many other places, Swamiji has talked about how Master was very enthusiastic. And, but that subtle line between allowing yourself to be pulled off center um, and um, apathy, because he says that. It's not that you become apathetic. It's that whatever you're enjoying, you enjoy it from the center of yourself. What he's really talking about is this great excitement. Oh, now everything is going well. Now I'm in love again. Now, uh, you know, I've gotten the new job. Now I love my new hair color and I got my face lifted and it looks perfect and 
look at these fabulous shoes and now I finally have the home I always wanted. You know, just something that emphatically declares that the source of the positive experiences I'm having is definitely outside myself. Because <laughs> that's, that's the part that is the pendulum swing. And it's not that you feel joy, it's that you have decided for sure that the source of my joy is over here, and, th- and then that's what, that's what causes you to have to go back this way. Now, as to why you become moody, um, you know, it, it just, I've, I've, I still, I guess I was really, I don't I was hoping I'd have some inspiration on it. But I, I do know, I mean, if you, if you see people, let's, let's think of it like this. If you see people who get sort of wildly drunk or just kind of carried away, I mean, I don't go those places anymore. I haven't gone to those places for decades. So it's more like, almost like I see it in the movies than I actually see it in real life. And of course, movies are really exaggerated. But you do see that kind of extremely excitable energy where people are really dancing to really loud music and drinking and just becoming... Um, you, hear, you see it in restaurants even. If you go into a, a restaurant and you see a, a large party near you and they start with wine at dinner and I, apparently Dr. Peter said when you drink, it affects your hearing, and that's why people get so noisy. Yeah, he said, it, it, uh, in fact, it can gradually take away your hearing. Um, because when you start drinking, your hearing becomes less acute, so people start talking louder, because they can't tell that they're talking louder, and they need to talk louder so other people hear them. That's why drunken situations, people become so noisy. But if you're sitting in a restaurant and you see a, a group of people who are just starting to drink wine, you just notice that they become more and more rowdy from my perspective, you know, for, for no particular reason. I've shared with you before, because I have to say my life is ridiculously innocent and has been for a really long time. Um, in 1981, when we were working on trying to get Anand incorporated as a California city in Dallas, Atkins was a woman uh, attorney who lived at Ananda Village at that time. She and I were working on it then, and Idruva joined us eventually. Um, we were connected to some county officials, one man in particular who was the chairman of the committee, the LAFCO committee, and he was also a local engineer. He was a nice man. And so he invited us to his Christmas party that year. And, um, you know, we, we thought, well, you know, we don't usually mingle with people outside of Ananda, but why not? He was a nice man. So he, he was having it in his office, and it was a, a largish room, and all the furniture was pushed back, and there was a refreshment table. And, you know, an Ananda party always has an agenda. I mean, like you, those of you who are here for Easter, you know, you have different people singing, a few people in costumes, some, some things are touching, thumbs are amusing, you know, but it's a lot of generated, clean, bright entertainment. And, and as, as I'm sitting in this party, I, I sort of realized there was a piano in the room, but it was turned to the wall you know, just pushed out of the way. And I just gradually realized that there was, there was no provision for anything to happen. And naive that I am, it took me quite a long time to realize that we were just going to drink. I mean, they were just going to drink. And the entertainment was that people would gradually just lose their discrimination and that would make everything seem like more fun than it actually was. <laughs> so, you know, we stood there with a glass of water in our hand for half an hour, and then as things began to heat up, 
we graciously said goodbye because then we just you know it wasn't it wasn't our scene. And these were nice people. It's Nevada County after all. It's not um, Las Vegas or something. It was just that's what it was. But uh, the the idea of just I mean the, you I can sort of feel that relationship. I guess I have to associate it with drunkenness, but drunkenness often leads to licentious behavior and overstimulation and careless sexuality. It often goes together. People lose their discrimination and they're, they're seeking to intensify their experiences. And, you know, that's uh, when, you start, when you start pushing, trying to intensify experiences, it's just never enough. Someone remarked that, you know, at first when people would ride in a car, 20 miles an hour seemed really fast. Then 20 miles an hour didn't seem fast, so then you had to go 40, and then after you got to go 40, you had to go 70. And he said that's the trouble when you're trying to, uh, that is the trouble, when you try to stimulate your senses, it becomes ordinary. So you, you, first sugar was a tremendous treat. People would get an orange for Christmas, and it was just an amazing thing to have a fresh orange at Christmas time, hugely expensive and wildly indulgent. You know, but now we don't even think about that, so we have to, Literally, you go to the restaurant and they'll offer you death by chocolate. <laughs> you know, it's like they just push it. They have to push it farther and farther. But if you think of it like that, past overindulgence and sense pleasures, if you think of it like pushing and pushing and pushing, and a lot of a lot of the um, whatever you would call the pornography and the extreme sexuality that we see in our times is just because, uh, whereas any sexual uh, contact used to be very limited, uh, you know, to marriage or to very controlled situations. Now, where everything is so available and that which used to be um, unique is now commonplace, then it's not enough. So you have to start pushing it farther and farther. And, you know, the more, the, the coarsening of our culture is just, and, you know, it's just, it's just stunning. Every movie you go to has, has almost always some nudity in it and it has some casual sexuality. I mean, you don't even, nobody even thinks about it. It's, it's we've become so morally depraved, we think we're normal. <laughs> but the result of that is that people don't get from that experience what they used to get from that experience because 20 miles an hour now seems slow. So they have to go 40 and then they have to go 70. So that's what happens and so when he's talking about overindulgence and sense pleasures, he's not talking about a little ice cream for dessert every night. He's talking about that kind of uh, hunger that gets woken in you for more and more intense experiences. And you can just sort of see how that would... I, I mean, there are many ways. I'm, a master just talks about the pendulum, but it also strains your nervous system. It strains your nervous system and it exhausts you. And, and then the res- as the result of exhaustion... What comes in when you're exhausted? You become discouraged, you become depressed, um, just all the things that people would call moods. You become, you, you don't feel, you, you've inherently violated your own dignity. And as a consequence, you feel embarrassed. You know, you feel sullied in some way. And so, so there you are, and that of course is going to make you feel plenty moody. If you're not proud of yourself, Swami just said once, the only way to really, uh, how did he put it, the only way to have true self-acceptance is to have a clear conscience, is what he said. (laughs) Which was, you know, just really totally outside the box of what everyone else was saying. 
He said, you have to be a good person or else you feel bad. I mean, what do you expect? You can't just be a bad person and expect to have no consequences from it. Of course, we're going, there's a whole other dimension of that. He was talking about deliberate, flagrant violation of your own, well, I'll use the word dignity again, of your own dignified divine nature. You can't just do that because there are karmic laws. He, in, in the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, and I only mention this, I, I'm, not, I'm not meaning this in a judgmental way, I'm just found, I found this astonishing. It's the only place I've ever seen him say it. And I didn't see it until after he'd passed away, so I can't really ask him. He said, um, promiscuity results in difficult... Promiscuity in women... Or no, over, he didn't use the word promiscuity. Too much sex. Too much sexuality in women creates too much heat on the ovaries and makes conception difficult. Isn't that conception difficult? I mean, that's just like, oh my gosh. Now, quite apart from anything else, it's like you can't just casually just throw away ages and ages of um, principles. I mean, many, many, many principles of social behavior are entirely arbitrary and imposed and have no basis in truth. Many, many. But others, there is a reality. And it's not, it's the reality of, of uh, lack of self-restraint. And, and just the, the lack of, of, of dignity and self-restraint, overindulgence in sensual pleasures. It's just, it, it has consequences. And when, when we were in our, in our teens and 20s, we meaning my, my peers, and we were just blowing apart the moral code of society, you know, and we were all in it together, and asked Swami, what do you think about, you know, this complete breakdown of traditional morality? He said, I don't think it's a bad thing, he said like that. He said, because people are making their own experience their criteria for truth. And that is, that is essential. You can't just be frightened into behaving a certain way because other people have told you. He said, provided, and then he added, it was a little bit like Master in the autobiography, the householder path is the higher path, provided the yogi maintains a mental detachment, that small little word in there. So when we said, provided that people are honest about their actual experience, which is that one discovers what works and what doesn't work, that's all. And in terms of happiness, whether you discover in one lifetime or not, is a, I don't know. I watched a, a documentary recently on the King James Bible, which actually was rather interesting. And I, I, I got out of this this obscure, marvelous fact. For a person who has done a lot of writing, printing, and proofreading, the, the all-time greatest proofreading mistake ever was in 1631. In one of the early printing of the King James Bible, they left out three letters, and it was the words N-O-T, and it was the seventh commandment, and it was printed, Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> and he shows us this huge volume that was beautifully printed, and there's the seventh commandment. They call it the Devil's Bible, the ones that were all printed there. But, but it was just some human being who made a proofreading mistake, that's all. Oh my gosh. 
you imagine? Can you imagine when that was discovered? Because the thing is all bound, so they didn't, you know, they, they, they printed it, they started passing them out. And just, I, I, I love to humanize these. I just see somebody somewhere, you know, what are they going to do when they realize that it's all done? And it was not, you know, you couldn't just go back to the computer file. <laughs> but of course, you know, they're, they're treasures now, the dark Bible. <laughs> so we, where were we? Oh, yes. I was talking about moods. So, I, I'm, on, I'm going back to what Master's saying. If you indulge in moods, and did, did she say just moods in general, or did she say sad moods? A certain disciple suffered from moods. Moods tend to be depression and sadness. That's, that, when you say that someone is moody, that tends to be what, what you're talking about. But if you indulge that for a long time, I think you would also just become so pent up. There would, there would be a natural just desire to break out of that. But he says, even whether you, whether, you're, whether you want to or not, how does he say it? You know, with or without your consent. So it's self-indulgence. And it just flips to the other side of self-indulgence. What do I want? Moods are very, moods are very tricky. Now, that's why he spends so much time on them here, because they feel out of your control. It's extremely boring to be told by someone to snap out of it. You know, it's just, it's just like, it's very annoying. And yet at the same time, when you're standing outside of someone's mood, you can see how self-imposed it is. But when you're inside of it, it does not feel self-imposed, but when you're outside looking at it, it just looks like, why? Why are you like this? And the, I mean, the, the, the way, the best way to get out of it is selfless service, actually, which is because moods are, what about me, what about me, what about me, what about me? So you can't just, most people can't just sit there and break that thought. You generally, you just have to do something. I mean, someone that I knew at Ananda was extremely moody. Swami just kept her working all the time. Just kept her working all the time. And someone said, don't you think she ought to have a day off? And Swami said, I know what is best for her. Because when she had time to herself, she immediately fell into a mood. And given this, you know, the more she was allowed to indulge in those moods, the more she set herself up for the, for the uh, possibility that she was going to have to boomerang the other direction. But if he kept her busy, she was able to you know, at least get the good karma of putting out energy in that way. Karma yoga is one of the best ways to overcome the ego. And ego, moods are just ego. It's such an annoying thing for moods to be ego because much of the time when you're in a mood, you're spending so much time thinking how dark and worthless you are. And then to have somebody tell you that you're just indulging your ego, it's infuriating. You know, I've never successfully had anybody be really pleased to have me explain that to them. It just, and I've never really liked it when anybody told me either. It's like, you know, no, no, you just don't go into your ego. This is like very, very unhelpful, but nonetheless true. So one almost has to have, uh, I mean, reading this is terrifying because what this is telling you, you think if I just keep punishing myself and feeling miserable, pretty soon I'll expiate my sin, whatever it was. I mean, that is, that's the, the illogic of it that somehow you think if I just keep 
suffering like this, that somehow the suffering will end. But the master's horrifying analysis is that, in fact, you will swing back the other direction and then you will just be on this pendulum forever. So the necessity to resist those moods when they come, my solution has always been active activity. Because if, if you put yourself in... And it's, it's fascinating to me to watch because I've seen it so many times in myself and in others. Where were you? Why didn't you come to the program? Why weren't you at the meditation? Oh, I just felt so bad. I just didn't think I should. You know, invariably, when you feel so bad, you're, you're really careful to protect your negative energy by not going where any positive energy might affect you. And it seems so reasonable. The worst one is, I don't want to impose my negativity on anyone else. That's the devil's most clever. Really. But it's really saying, if you go where there's positive energy, I might not be able to hold you any longer. <laughs> it's true. But it's not funny when it happens. I mean, I've watched my own mind work that. Oh, it's just too much trouble. I'm too sad. I might start crying. I don't want to go. And then, of course, when I'm forced to go, because responsibilities or whatever it is pushes me, all of a sudden I forget I was in a bad mood. And then you think, why couldn't I have remembered that when I was? So it's almost like you have to make rules. Where you, where you don't allow yourself, if you know that you're prone to moods, that you don't allow yourself to make decisions. You know, and that's why you, you have to keep moving. That's why Swami never gave this woman any time off. She had to be somewhere all the time. Because if she was allowed to decide, if she had free time and could make a decision, she would not make a decision in her own best interest. And sometimes... And I see people really, really busy. Some will say, oh, so-and-so so busy. He shouldn't be so busy. Yes, he should be. He should be very busy. should be very busy all the time. What else is he going to do? I mean, if you really are going to use your free time creatively, dynamically, spiritually, or even just to be a little balanced and not be out of your mind, I'm all for that. But I don't think we can work too much. If you can work that much, I think you should work that much. Why not? Because we're all expiating a whole lot of stuff. Let's just keep going. You have to watch yourself. It's a very fine line, but you have to watch yourself. Swami kept us insanely busy. Just crazy busy. It was always centered. It was calm. Well, sometimes it was. It was meant to be. But it was just, what are you going to do if you're not doing this? And that's always the question. And if it's good, if you're using your time well, or you're just finished. You know, I'm gonna, I need to curl home. I need a night off. I need a little tam- tamasic energy. <laughs> it's just, that's okay. You have to be sensible. Well, you say about being busy. Well, I'm not always that, but I find changing the energy, like going outside, just going for a walk, going someplace different, and yeah, not being where I am. It's simple, and it makes such a difference. But that's, that's what I mean. You have, to, you have to get rules in your own head. Yeah. If you know that your judgment's going to get spoiled, you have to really try, at least try to persuade yourself, when I feel like this, I will do this. Instead of when I feel like this, I will try to decide what to do. And you'll say, when I feel like this, I'm not qualified to say, and therefore. But you know, there's just that, there's that little, you know, just that little shift. It's, you know, so much of our spiritual life just depends on that one moment. Which way do you go? Do I just jump out of bed and start energizing knowing that if I do that as soon as I've done a few exercises I'll be happy to be up (laughs) 
<laughs> or do I wait a little longer to see if I feel like getting up? You know, it's just those, and a lot, a lot depends just on moments like that. It's 7.15, do I get in the car and go to the temple, or do I just wait a few more minutes? Oh, now it's too late, you know, it's just a lot of, that's the battle, that's the battle of Kurukshetra. But th- I, th- I find this particular number 235 a terrifying incentive for right behavior. Yeah, really. Because whoever, who wants to go back there? Yeah. You, you, yeah. And especially that with or without his consent. And then he says, to stop the unending th- flow, the secret is to resist. And this is where he says, the pendulum swing. Resist inwardly. The pleasure you feel in anything and so what, that was where I was saying earlier, it's not resist the uplifted, happy feeling, but re- resist the belief inside yourself that now that I have this, I'm never going to be sad again. You know? And also then you have to resist the sadness when it comes. I was talking to someone recently, just trying to really... Um, I've been trying to do this for years, trying to really understand and if possible articulate the way Swami experienced life. Because I used to think, and I've said this many times in here, I used to think that he was not subject um, to the same feelings that some people were subject to, especially feelings of disappointment or sadness. or you know, and he, Like all that he had to suffer with SRF, for a long time I somehow just pretended uh, I just pretended that it wasn't what it really was for him, that it wasn't as really just unbearable as it really was. But then I heard him say things like, for weeks I lay on my bed and prayed to die. So I think, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. You know, that's not like somebody who's just like saying, oh, why should I let it touch me? I mean, that was how he described himself. He's just, his life was over, what was he going to do? What I finally came to today when I was trying to express, and he said to me, I mean, because I, I discussed this with him, I said, sir, I, because you're so impersonal, and impersonal means because he had this sense of uh, observation of himself rather than being totally lost in his own life, I used to think that you didn't feel things as deeply. And I, he looked at me and said, oh no, I feel things much more deeply than most people. He said, I'm very sensitive. So, because he would feel not only whatever was going through him, but he would also be conscious of everybody else's role in it and how they were suffering and the karma they were going to have. And just, you know, everything. Much more rather than less. But today I I came up with the phrase, I never saw it make him off-center. And I was actually even really trying to think, how would I explain that? I don't know. It was more like a sense of things. One of the evidences of that was he himself said, sometimes when he was going through some really difficult thing in personally one way or another in, in, his, in the life that related just around him, he could also write wonderful books and fantastic music. And he said he was always able, it, whatever was happening to him or, th- or in him never affected his capacity to be creative, which is to say it didn't break the link. Whereas I know for myself, when I'm not um, up to snuff for whatever reason, it breaks the link. And that, that was 
um, just a, one way of thinking of it. So, well, I, I've quoted Mickey Singer, who uh, wrote Michael Singer. He wrote a couple of books that have become actually national bestsellers. And uh, when Amrit Desai, who is a really wonderful spiritual teacher, when his whole ashram kind of imploded and he ended up out of it, you know, he left his, his own ashram and went somewhere else and he went actually to live with Michael. And he went to live with Michael. Michael he, his ashram was in Massachusetts and Amrit Desai went to Florida to live with Michael Singh. Michael is essentially my peer, but he's, he's much more uh, recognized as an individual as a leader and as a writer and so on. You know, I'm, I'm part of the crowd here. He's, he stands out. And, uh, but he's a, uh, a friend from a distance. He described Amrit Desai going through this incredible, complete loss of his life's work. And he said, what was so amazing to, to Michael as he watched him, was to watch someone who had the consciousness that Amrit Desai does, and yet this incredible life problem had just overwhelmed him. And he said, it wasn't so much that Amritji was going through a hard time, as that a hard time was going through Amrit. <laughs> and I thought that was just brilliant, absolutely brilliant, because it was really happening. And it was also, it, he was experiencing it. But, but there was, himself was still the container rather than himself becoming the experience. And, and that was, I think, what I'm trying to say when Swami didn't lose his center. But he still experienced. And, and so for us, you know, where, where was, I, was I with this? Oh, this is the resisting. You know, just sort of like we're pulled over to this sadness, but even just having this idea, oh, this is just the natural pendulum swing for all those wild parties I went to. You know, this is the natural pendulum swing for all that self-indulgent, who cares if it hurts anybody, I want it. You know, for all those drunken days and nights, or for just all that wild irresponsibility, for abandoning my children so I could go off and play, whatever it might have been, this is just the natural balance point of that, and I just have to outlast it. You know, I just have to outlast it. And that was... You remember how Swamiji said to Norman when Norman had all these terrible moods? And, Ma- and Swamiji said to Norman when they were both young monks, Norman, I mean, really, how long can it last? 40, 50 years? <laughs> Which did not comfort Norman. <laughs> In fact, I believe Swami said he went screaming from the room or something like that. But it comforted Swamiji. But he didn't, I mean, it, it, because Swamiji had that perspective. 40, 50 years, that's not a very high price to pay to get free of this. You know, so you have to struggle all this time. Don't give up. And that's where Master says you have to resist it from both sides. You can't just wildly think, oh, now it's over and now I'm free. And you rush over here. Now this good thing has happened and I'll just take it and hold it and have it and it'll compensate for all that I've lost. But it's just like, oh, look how wonderful. I remember, I haven't thought about this in a long time, I was in a period of time in my life when everything was going really well. And I remember whispering, this is a very good period in my life, you know, and soon it won't be. <laughs> and then sure enough, after a while, it wasn't. You know, it, but it was just trying to make light of that. 
that I'm noticing this is good, I'm not resisting it, but it won't last because I'm not free. So I know that merely because I'm having a period of freedom, that does not mean that I am free. So there will still be something else that's going to roll back. Swami didn't identify with the changes. There was some part of him that still, no matter what happened, did not change. Exactly. Terrible things happened, terrible things were happening. Right. But there was still something inside him. Something that, and he even said, when he first came out in public, started coming out in public after the the debacle with being uh, expelled from SRF, when he was so depressed, and people said, above all, what they felt from him was joy. He writes us in the path. He says, joy? That would have been the last thing he would have thought. But then he had to realize that there was still way deeper in there, there was some undercurrent that really hadn't been touched. But I've also really tried to understand that because if he were really able to feel that, he would have been different. So it was like, on what level was that taking place? And even though he could admit it, is it like the joy of, of what? I, I just, I'm, I'm puzzled. I just have to, I hear him say it. I try to understand it because I want to be honest of my own experience and I also want the benefit of his. Like, what level is that? Um, well, there was something I was going to say with it. Let me just find it for a second. Um, oh, yes. He, Swamiji, and many saints, it's very common, will tell you that it doesn't matter whether you're happy or sad. I mean, quite apart from this, that whether, you know, if you love God enough, whether you're suffering or or having a good fortune, that it doesn't matter to you. And I've thought about that a lot because it matters to me a lot. And that's, that's where you're still, you're still allowing yourself to, you're still swinging at least some extent. But the only, the only way I've been able to think about it is when I, I, I've loved to have read, I used to read a lot of mountain climbing books and things like that. And, you know, Everest and Annapurna. And my gosh, those people go through horrible situations, just horrible. But they do it to, they do it to themselves on purpose. And they don't leave just because they're freezing and everything is awful, they just stick with it. And, and so somewhere in that, their suffering is irrelevant to them. They know, that, they know that the suffering is just going to be part of it. I was reading about a triathlon athlete who, and talked about the suffering that they go through and how at the end of that suffering, there's always this wonderful freedom. And, and so once they've done it a few times, they kind of know what's coming. And so I, it has to be something like that. Like you, you, know, <clears throat> you know where you're going and where you're going is really what you're involved in. And whether this part of the climb is easy and that part of the climb is hard and this part of the journey is pleasant and this part of the journey is just terrible. The journey is so incidental to the goal. Uh, and, and, it, and if you know that this, it's just necessary which, of course, you know it's necessary because you wouldn't be having the karma if it wasn't necessary. Sharmila? It, it seems like you're talking about faith 
Yes, I am talking about faith. That that it's that faith in faith that's based on some experience. Yeah. That even though you can't explain it, you don't know where you're going and you don't know what's coming. And I think of Swami, the incredible connection he had with Master, and that faith, even if he couldn't, if he didn't know why, yeah, you can't, that it you had can't happened. articulate it. I mean, and that's the pulse. That's what I think he meant by an undercurrent of joy. I think what he meant by that was, regardless, the meaning of life is still there. You know, compared, compared to, for example, not knowing, not having met his guru, not understanding self-realization, not really knowing. I remember him trying to reassure this. It happened to be an Indian woman who just kept talking about all these bad things that were happening to her. And he kept trying to get her to, to see, well, because you're a disciple, you know that Master is, uh, how did he put it? There's a purpose to what's going, what's happening to you. There's a purpose. And he kept trying to get her to cognize that having a purpose, understanding that there's a purpose, changes the experience. She was totally incapable of perceiving it because she was just so, uh, she just so wanted him to make it different. That That is the, the, the negative side of the enormous devotion that the Indians have for holy people is the belief that he can just, if he would, he will just fix it rather than he will help me to, to conquer it. He'll just, I'll just get him to fix it. So she couldn't hear him try to help her. She just wanted him to fix it. And whether he could or not, he wouldn't because it wasn't right for her. But that, that is an undercurrent of joy that I, that I myself know about no matter how miserable it is, if you have faith. That's why the doubter is the most miserable of mortals. Because if the actual experience is that you doubt whether or not there's a purpose to any of it, that would, that's the most miserable place you could be because then what do you cling to? So it's not anything you want. That's really something you want to work on. Yeah, past that. I'd like to. <clears throat> I'm still having a little trouble when you said. S- I am too. <laughs> With what in particular? <laughs> um, that I don't remember exactly what you said about how Swami was feeling. Mm-hmm. It wasn't pleasant, obviously. But then he could still write, and he could. Yeah, he could still. So write. I, I, I don't, I'm not understanding that. Well, I'm not understanding it either. But he could, he could separate himself from his personal experience. He could just, this, you know, in my personal life, this, this really tough thing is happening. But now I'm just going to go write music. And he was just able to just take his personal life. He was impersonal about his personal life. And so his personal life didn't have to intrude on his, his creative work because it was just his personal life and he was impersonal about it. It didn't make it any less, but he, he was able to just walk away from it for the duration To thee we aspire, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but it's you know he he would, he just says these things rather casually because he's trying to show us that's the whole point of his incarnation, Master's incarnation. What does it look like? 
And, and that's why I just have spent so much time both talking and reflecting on the question of what he really experienced. And, and because for reasons I've explained, but I'll fill it in here too, because my way of coping, I, I was not wholesome. It was to wall off a lot of experiences because they were just too painful. And I thought that was how you dealt with it. But I walled them off because I was afraid. And fear is always the opposite of love and freedom. So then, therefore, if you don't wall them off, then you have to experience them. And so I would try to think that he didn't, because that was also more comforting. I mean, I was just looking for a way out. But he just, he kept refuting my self-serving perceptions. And so even though I just don't have the consciousness to grasp his, I've at least come to the point where I can at least, uh, I have a better idea of what it was. You know, Master wept. People would leave the path. He wept. He's talking about Sister Gyanamata being completely free, and he's weeping because he's going to miss her. You just, I mean, if anybody should be impervious to death, you would think it would be Master. Like, so what if his friend Gyanamata has died? In theory, you would think, what difference would it make? But in fact, he's weeping about missing her. So you, you just have to stand back and think, there's some really big part of this I don't get. This is how I've always worked with Swamiji on every issue, is that if I think he's not living up to the ideals he's taught me, I think maybe I'm not getting this. And I would start from, if this is what he did, then what might it mean? Instead of always either just, you know, fuzzing out the parts that didn't work or, or just pretending they're not there, which is what we all do. We just, we try to, we, truth is this big and we're this big, so we just shrink it until it's a little more comfortable for us and declare that what my understanding is the top of the mountain because I prefer to be standing on the top of the mountain, so what do you know I am? <laughs> or if, if that's really... So this is the question, was it Saturday, Friday night or Sunday, somewhere over Easter that I brought that up where, you know, if Swamiji had to suffer, had, had to experience so much tapasya, does that mean all of us are going to have to, or we, you know, if, if we move into positions like he's had, does that mean we have to? And he's saying, oh, no, 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 this was just me. Basically, this was the right size for me. It would wipe you off the map is really the truth of it. If we had to endure what he had to endure, we couldn't. It, so it wouldn't come to us. God might test us to the max, but it wouldn't look the same. And Swami himself said his life never looked difficult to him. It just never looked difficult. People would enumerate the obstacles, and he just, oh, really? You know, is that so? Because it was the right size for him. He just moved. It, he had to have that much energy. And I, I, I've said this in the book that I wrote where, because he was a king, he ran countries. His, whenever he would talk about current events, it always had this, it was just had this ring to it. 
which was that he was, he was making the decisions. I mean, everybody else is gossiping about them, but he was actually seeing it from the seat, from the prime minister's seat, from the president's seat, from the commander-in-chief's position, and he would talk about the choices. I mean, it's not even like he talked about very much, but he always talked about the choices as if they were his decision, that this is what he would do. It had a whole different feel to it. The only one that he, that was funny when he was talking about the Pope, when he was talking about if the Pope allows the clergy, to, the priest to marry, he said it's the end of the Catholic Church. And if he doesn't allow the priest to marry, it's the end of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and then he said, I'm glad I'm not the Pope. <laughs> All right, let's take a short break and then we'll go on from this one. Um, two, two thoughts came up in the break. The first one was the simple thought when I talked about Swami being centered and it never throwing him off center. I mean, there's a, the way people talk about it is there's always an observer. You know, that there's, you can, you can be completely lost in your own reality or you can always just observe your reality a little bit. And uh, that's not, um, I, I mean, actually, in fact, I think that is, I, I tend not to think about that concept myself. That's why it didn't occur to me to say it that way. But I think that is exactly the concept. There's just that little bit of impersonality that is always just standing there, seeing what the jiva is doing, and not completely being lost in what the jiva is doing, but just there it is. Yes? In other words, sort of watching yourself. Yes, of course. I can relate to that, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, Harriet. Uh, Harriet. I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. Yes, that's exactly right. The lines from Master. I, the cosmic sea. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, colossal container eye of all things made. Uh, the other question was, how does... If Swami doesn't... The question just simply was, how does Swami cope? Am I saying that correctly? And I was saying that, by contrast, but the word that actually came to me when when that question was asked was, um, I have had a tendency to resist unpleasant experiences and try to diminish them by creating resistance to them. I, I use the phrase, wall them off a little bit, which is like, if I resist it enough, somehow I can keep it from being too strong. You know, literally you create resistance and the field can't get through. So you create the resistance of, of just suppression is actually using willpower to just suppress. Even if you're not thinking about suppressing, it's just you, you just don't want to go there, so to speak. Well, see, that action is based on fear. Well, if I have to actually feel that this whole thing, it's going to be terrible. So I don't want to feel it. And a lot of it is, when I, th- when I talk about walling off and suppressing, I'm not, for myself, just, I'm using myself as an illustration because I barely understand these things, so I have to just think very carefully. I'm not thinking so much that when you talk to me or I get upset about something, I suppress it in the moment. I, I think that I've learned a lot about being current. I always call it karmically current. You never know when the last breath is coming and you don't want to have a lot of karmic debts. If, you, if, you, if it needs to be said, say it. If somebody calls and wants to talk to me, I say, how about this afternoon? You know, it's like, let's just do it. Let's just do it right now. And if I'm upset with you, I'm going to just call you and we're going to 
we're going to sort it out. Um, but through many, I, what, I, what I suppress is many, many lives of experiences. You know, just that's what I've become conscious of, is that, you know, all the things that happen that don't get resolved, because the, your mirror, even one, you might not have been willing to resolve it, two, it may not have been capable of resolution. It's just somebody, I have a few intuitions and a few actual past life memories, but some pretty icky stuff where I or they behaved in such a way that we just ended up really upset and everybody died. You know, it just didn't, nobody ever got together and got it all sorted out. And it was never able to resolve. It was just a profound disappointment. You know, because the news is everywhere, you hear about people who have, you know, young couple gets married and then he has some terrible wasting disease and it's just tragic. Or the baby is born, but the baby has all these problems and it just, it's tragic. And there's just no amount of trying to make it nice that will ever make it nice. And so a person goes through a whole incarnation of profound and deep disappointment or ends up in profound and deep disappointment. And, and there it is. It's not transcended. And it's just there. And that's what I was talking about when I'm saying, you know, just suppressed energy that I'm afraid, have been afraid to let out because I fear the, the suffering. So then Swami says, what difference does it make if you suffer? If you suffer, you're happy. What difference does it make? It's all just duality. All we really want is freedom. And if the path to freedom is suffering or the path to freedom is happiness, what difference does it make? It's freedom that we want. And so the way he coped is he didn't really care. If something was deeply disappointing, well, there it was. It was deeply disappointing. If somebody betrayed him, well, there it was. They betrayed him. If, if uh, this beautiful situation that he saw when Parameshwari was part of his life and he saw such a really um, extraordinary spiritual potential in her and she threw the whole thing away, it was just, it was incredibly sad for him. Because, one, he saw the trajectory she was going to have to go through now, which he had hoped to spare her. And he saw the, the, the divine potential that was there that would never be realized. And it was intensely sad for him. And he didn't try to say, oh, well, everything happens for the best. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was tragic. But he, he wasn't frightened to just see it and experience it. He wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't have to protect his heart. You know, I, I protect my heart a lot because it, it just, it scares me to let it be too vulnerable. Has, I'm going to try to put that in the past tense, but it has. And you know, I have a lot of, I have had a lot of past life traumas. Who hasn't? And it's just like, I want them to go away. I don't want them to go through me. So I have to put up a certain resistance, otherwise they might start going through me. And so, I mean, he, he didn't care if they went through it. He didn't care. Pardon me? He was afraid of nothing. It's very interesting. Yeah, he walked like that, and that was just, he was afraid of nothing. He wanted the truth, period. I mean, that, very early, long before I came on the spiritual path, I got that fear was the issue. And then I read 
Paul, St. Paul's words, perfect love casts out fear. Because I had never really understood that the opposite of fear is love, which is really interesting. I thought the opposite of fear was courage. That's what you would naturally think. But the actual opposite of fear is love. So Swami was fearless because he was conscious of God's love. And he was conscious that everything was a manifestation of God's love. So what was there to fear? And that's again, why do you care if you're suffering? Because everything is a manifestation of God's love. I mean, it's a gift. People say these words, but when you really think, how would I behave if I really felt that way? So everything crashes down on you and you're like Job on the dung heap and everything is gone because God loves you so much. Because God knows that you really don't need that. You just think you need it. So I'm going to relieve you of something that's actually a burden to you. Even though you didn't know that it was a burden, you thought it was a positive thing. But he knows it's a burden. So looky, you get to, it gets to be taken away from you. I was, was it on Friday night I was saying Swami's words, why are you taking this so hard? Well, I have a lot of reasons why I'm taking it so hard. But why are you taking it so hard? If this is happening because of God's will, because God loves you. I mean, that's the whole Jesus story. But it, it, you know, it gets really confused. And you get to think the more I'm suffering, the more God loves me. Because Jesus, you know, Jesus suffered so much. That must mean that the more you suffer, the more God loves you. That's a confusion. Because well, the whole point is, I'm not really suffering. I may feel terrible, but I'm not suffering. Because God is taking really good care of me. Crazy, crazy. What is day to the yogi is night to the worldly man. What is night to the yogi is day to the worldly man. It's a complete flip. I was my Episcopal, my yogi, my Kriyaban yogi Episcopal priest friend thought it would be terrific fun to take his Jewish yogi Kriyaban friend, me, to the Christian-Jewish dialogue <laughs> that was happening in Seattle when I was visiting. So he very proudly and rather impishly took me in. And we were sitting there with some rabbis and some Episcopal priests. We were, you know, we were, we were all being extremely tolerant and trying to understand each other. And uh, it was the Jews' turn, and the Jewish people have this uh, interest in suffering, pretty similar to the Christians. And they really feel, and I'm not making light of this, that the events in the Second World War and the, you know, the genocide that took place to the Jewish people so defines modern Judaism and modern Israel. I mean, this, also, this all took place even 25 years ago. That if any Christian is going to understand Judaism, they have to understand what that experience was. So we happened to be, for this one session that I was in, we were looking at certain materials about that experience that the rabbis had given to the priests and the priests were supposed to study and we were all supposed to discuss. And it was a series of different things written by different people. And one of them was, Rabbi somebody or another said that the, the fundamental principle of Judaism is Sanat and Dharma. He didn't, know that, he didn't know those words, but that's what he was saying, is that there is no reality but God and that everything in life comes from God and all that happens to us is a gift from God. Yeah, perfect. Therefore, the time when all the Jews were taken to the concentration camps was the shining hour for the Jewish people because it gave us the opportunity 
to live our teaching because everything was taken away from us except our faith in God. And therefore, really nothing was taken away from us. We got to, we got to prove that. Nobody in the room, even though we had all read it, nobody in the room could actually even see those words, above all the rabbis. And I made several attempts to point out that I thought the most interesting reading was this one, but the rabbis just kind of glazed over and went past it. Because really, what are you supposed to do with that? But it was perfect. It was what is day to the yogi, is night to the worldly man, what's night to the yogi. And that's why when Swami said, (laughs) into a room of about 800 people, that the Jews deserved what happened to them, um, the room just uh, erupted in absolute bedlam. But he was talking about karma. And he was, and then he talked about the word deserve. You know, why would you say that when I said that, that that was punishment? I mean, he wasn't that tricky, but that's what he was saying. You know, I can't think of anyone who deserves that promotion more than you. You know, you've really worked for it. <laughs> it's just like he meant that they had merited such a, an extraordinary test because of their great devotion and their great power. That was what the rabbi had said. And that's the book of Job. But to, to, to have that as a theory and to actually not flinch is really, is, those are very different. And you saw me would tell us these horror stories to my mind about the physical things that he would endure. And I, I figured out after a while that one was because we were all afraid of physical pain and we don't fortunately encounter it that often. But when we go to the dentist, we do encounter it. So he would always tell us about going to the dentist and not taking Novocaine because that was his opportunity to test himself against that, uh, which he passed with flying colors and which uh, the mere telling of those stories was terrifying to me because I'm still very afraid of it. But why? Well, I certainly don't have the courage to seek it out. If God sends it to me, that's going to be a different situation. But I can't, I don't have the courage to seek it out. I just, there you are. But you see, and so that's how Swami coped, fear without fear. And that was when I said to him, when he was going through, I believe it was when he had compression fracture in his spine. When it, we didn't know what it was for a while, so he just had this horrible pain. He actually referred to that pain at once as the kind of pain that people kill themselves over. That's how he referred to that at one point. You know, he, you just don't know because you can't tell with him. Um, Dr. Peter said when Swami was having this incredible arrhythmia in his heart, Peter said, for almost everyone, that kind of irregular heartbeat, because without realizing, you depend on the regularity of your heartbeat for your equanimity. And so when that heartbeat starts skipping around, almost everyone become emotionally agitated by that. And part of the way the physician reads the, the, the... the condition is by reading the emotional response. And so Peter used the phrase, he said, treating Swami for his arrhythmia is like being a veterinarian. <laughs> he said, because the creature is not responding and you have to figure it out from some other method. And I found this note where Swami said to Dr. Peter, his heart was doing some wild thing, and he said to Peter, Peter, did you hear that one? He said, that was such an unusual rhythm. And then Swami says, but I don't believe any composer 
either classic or modern could actually do anything with it. <laughs> and then just completely outside of it. It's just because he wasn't afraid. So, but anyway, he had this pain in his back and that was, I believe, he went to the dentist and didn't have any cavities. <laughs> so he came home rather proudly and announced that he didn't have any cavities. And I said, because I was thinking of the pain in his back, at least you don't have any cavities. So I said, thank the Lord for little favors. And he went absolutely like Mount Rushmore on me, just bing, like that. And he said, I thank God for everything. I mean, it was just a throwaway, but he wasn't, he wasn't going to take it, not for a second. I mean, he was teaching me also, because I, I was thanking the Lord for little favors, you know, because I'm full of preferences, likes and dislikes. What binds us, likes and dislikes. It's, it's really, it's, it's thrilling to contemplate, and it also, it just like, it opens up. This, this is what I've loved about this path. It just, you, it, when I was little and I lived in El Paso, Texas, El Paso, Texas is nowhere at all. It's just surrounded by this huge expanse of desert, and it's the, the kind of desert that's just desert. Feature, the featureless desert is what it is. Just rolling hills, rolling hills of sand and the cactus. And, just, and to get anywhere from El Paso, you had to just go, fr- from a child's point of view, you had to go miles and miles across this stuff. And, and there were these long, flat roads that just went forever. And they would have those little mirages. You know how you get that mirage in the sun where it would be wet? And I can, I can still remember as kids, we had a lot of fun, just trying to urge my dad to drive just a little faster, because if he did, we could catch it this time. <laughs> and uh, I, that image, of because it was a childhood memory, uh, Whenever I think I have a little grasp on what this path is, I, I just, it's exactly like that. I'm just, I'm moving fast, I'm coming right up on it. But just before I get there, it vaporizes and moves out beyond me. And actually, I love that. Because if you have a, if you have a big energy, as I've always had, you can consume things, and then they're just finished, and then what do you do? And when I found this path, I had my fingers crossed, but I didn't know. But it's just been, you know, all these years, it's just still the mirage in front of me. Just never, because it's infinite. So all these different understandings of Swami that I've watched for so many years, and I, you know, I thought I had a little bit of an understanding, and all of a sudden it just flips, and I realize, no, I'm just walking up to the mirage, and he was just moving out. I could only see what I could see. Isn't it wonderful? I love it. I absolutely love it. Okay, any other comments or thoughts or questions? I only wish that he was still here so I could talk to him about it. But he said that so many times about Master. Oh, if only. If only I could be with him now with what I know. I said, well, one should probably always have to say that. And he said, of course. But it doesn't make you feel any. Oh, if only. Every so often I have one of these insights and I just, I just want to tell him. I mean, I do tell him, but I want to be able to hear his answer, which sometimes I do, but not as easily. Okay. Any comments or questions? This next one is really long. It's four pages. So we'll just start. So this is number 236. 
The master found amusement, if anything, in pedantry. He would sometimes joke about its pretensions. A story he liked to tell laughingly was the following. Oh, this is so silly. The wife of a certain philosopher asked him to go out and buy her a bottle of oil. He was returning home with the bottle when he began to muse. Now, is the oil really in the bottle, or do my senses deceive me? Could it be rather that the bottle is in the oil? His wife met him at the door and demanded, where is the oil? My wife, the philosopher declared grandly, I have just made an important discovery. Where is the oil? She repeated. I'm coming to that, he assured her. Listen, I purchased the oil, then looking at it, I thought, yes, this is oil and it appears to be inside the bottle, but my... um, My apperceptive, I guess that's the word, my apperceptive perception, however, doubts whether the oil really is in the bottle or whether the bottle might not possibly be inside the oil. Where is the oil? (laughs) demanded his wife. (laughs) Yes, 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 I'm coming to that, dear, he assured her hastily. So then I upturned the bottle, and now I think that maybe the oil was in the bottle. You fool, cried his wife. (laughs) Picking up a broom, she beat him over the apperceptively perceptive head with it. (laughs) You know, it's like, um, uh, Master's seen it all. You know, he's he's seen it all. He comes from a place of true wisdom. He's been through all those stages of life himself. And uh, you know what was so dear about him, Swami often said, is that he, he enjoyed the human comedy so much, but he was always sympathetic, no matter how foolish anyone was. And Swami tells that story about the Indian man who put on the, the dance, and that Master was just laughing, so the tears were running down his face. But when the, the dancer complained that it was the orchestra's fault because they weren't well-trained, Master was just very sympathetic. Because from his point of view, that's what was really happening. But Master wasn't a, uh, what do you say? He was so lighthearted that he could still enjoy it. But because of that, you know, people, everybody trusted him. And I'm sure he could get away with a lot. Anyway, um, the Master commented, with real intellectuals, you don't have any trouble. They want the truth, not mere definitions of the truth. With these half-breeds, he calls them. However, the moment you open your mouth, they are already convinced you are a charlatan. Swamiji talked once about a, a lecture he gave at some college with college students. And he talked about how very, very, very bright the students were and how intensely they were able to counter what he said and the questions they asked and sort of how, uh, how stimulating it was on a certain level, because for Swami it was an interesting challenge to have to meet such bright minds with this. But afterwards, Swamiji realized that they were just going to go home and come up with more questions. Because it wasn't really that they wanted to get down to what the actual reality of it was. It was the game of it. It was being able to be sharp like that. That's why I lasted a week at college. I, there was a class, um, that was my, 
I, I, my, I'm, I matriculated at Stanford University is how I say it, and then I get all the benefit of the status without ever having actually to have attended. But I, um, I took a class called Consciousness because that seemed like an interesting thing to me at that point. And I thought, I thought we were going to... I just assumed, because here I was at this prestigious university with all these really bright people, I thought we were actually going to talk about what was true. And I, I was so dismayed at how carefully the professor was making sure that we never drew any conclusions, that we were just bringing forth all the different evidence for different points of view. And he, he just wouldn't even allow us to try to sort through it on any basis for what might be, you know, even to prioritize these different points of view. We could only just discuss them. And I just, that was it. I mean, I, I, last, I stayed in for the whole year, but I just thought this is not my place. Um, there was another, let me think what I was going to say, there's another part of this. Um, now it's going to just be a whole question about whatever it was. And when I finally find it, it's going to be so pointless. Let's just go on from there. <laughs> but that was why when I met Swami Kriyananda, it was just like he was, he was actually willing to commit himself to a reality based, in, based on many things rather than just being unwilling. Oh, I found it. I do remember. That's, I've got it. Um, friends of mine were research scientists, prestigious research scientists who did lots of research. And they were, one of them was in a little bit of a crisis and they invited me out to dinner. We were going to discuss the crisis. And the crisis was this, that one of them had a research grant and the research wasn't going well because what was going to happen was that the thesis upon which the, the grant had been achieved was proving to be false. So I said, sure, I mean, that's great. You're doing research, you had a theory, now it's proving to be false. And, and she looked at me like, you don't understand. You know, if, if my theories don't prove to be true, then I'm not going to be able to get another grant. And I said, so explain to me what the concept of research is. You know, and then when I actually understood which is you never apply for a grant unless you believe that you already know what the answer is and all you're going to do is support it because otherwise you can't get any more grant. I started, I started laughing so hard I couldn't stop laughing, which until it was very disconcerting to my host, but it was just like, you're kidding, you know, because this is like this huge prestigious position, but they were never actually doing research. They were just proving their own points because if they weren't right, how could they ever... You know, all I, I just said, as I say a thousand times, I'm so glad I met Swami Kriyananda. Because I was just, I was so confused. Because to me, my, my reality is just different. And I'm, I really, I'm not really, because a lot of good work is done in that context. But sometimes the emperor has no clothes. And you just don't even know what you're doing. And it gets so confused. And I'm just grateful that they incarnated and actually offered us a straight line that you can actually really follow. That's what I felt when I... I'm going to shut the book because it's over. The, um, when I met Swami Kriyananda, what I felt was, for the first time in my life, there was a fixed point of reference. And that was you, just the difference between having that and not having that. 
It, you know, it was just like a universe of difference. Even if I couldn't relate to it properly, the mere fact that it existed, and that, that was what freaked me out so much in my first week at Stanford University, is these people don't know. They have no fixed point of reference. And how, how, you know, how can you know what to do? And of course I was too um, subtle in my mind to take a fixed point of reference like Jesus Christ is our only Savior, you know, just something that, that wouldn't stand up to scrutiny. I needed something that would really stand up to scrutiny. So these people had the capacity to really scrutinize, but they weren't even trying. That was what was so upsetting to me. They had the capacity to actually do it, but they had chosen not to. And see, that's what Master's talking about. He's talking about people who have very bright minds, but use their minds to constantly hold the conclusion at bay. And those are the half-breeds. Real intellectuals, he said. Real scientists. Re- real research people want the truth. That's what they're trying to do. And they'll just keep going till they get it, whether it's in scientific or philosophical or literary circles. But that's the, that's the difference. And even the belief that there is a center point from which everything radiates. And that's a kind of intuition. There's a center point from which things radiate. Whatever your field, mathematics, medicine, there's some central point and I build on that. Rather than it's all a moving target, what difference does it make? And that insecurity, just, I don't know how people can live. But, as Swami said, when they can't live that way anymore, they find the spiritual path. And as long as they can live that way, they don't. So everybody's really just fine. <laughs> you, you just attract what it is that you need. All right? Okay, that was fun. Let me, we did one and a quarter. We did number 235, and we started number 236. And if I could have a pencil or a pen from someone, thank you.